I'd like for you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, and then a page over to the right, 2 John. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19. Speaking of God and us, it says, We love him because he first loved us. Obviously, before we can say that we love the Lord, and we use that phrase all the time, many times, we describe people like that. They love the Lord, they say. And I'm not saying they don't. All I'm saying is that nobody can love the Lord unless the Lord first loves them. Now, how many people in this world have experienced that? I don't know. It's easier to talk about it and to sing about it than it is to describe it or to define it. But the scripture says we love him because he first loved us. And then in 2 John, verse 5 and 6, And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, verse 6, and this is love, that we walk after his commandment, and this is the commandment, as we have heard from the beginning, that we should walk in it. I want to talk this morning about God's response to our love. We could call it God's response to love, but I want to make it personal. We'll put the word our in there, God's response to our love. Now, this message came as I was reading a verse of scripture I'm very familiar with, John 14, and was reading through there, using that as a reference in a sermon. But the more I got to thinking about it, you know, Jesus said, if you have my commandments, because he spoke of commandments here in 2 John, he said, he that hath my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Now, we'll get to that verse shortly. And I began to ask myself the question, I wonder how many people in that sense love God. Now, I know people love themselves. They like the idea of God doing something for them or benefiting in some way from Christian service or quoting the Bible or going to church. They like to derive some benefit from this. I'm getting something out of this. And I think a lot of people, as long as they're getting something back from God, are able to say, I love the Lord. I think sometimes it boils down because people give up so easy. A lot of people's love is like the love of a prostitute. You know, they know how to go through the motions of love. They know how to say what you like to hear and they know how to perform. But they do it for a fee, for what they get from it. They don't love who they're with. They don't love what they do. They love what they get from what they do. And people love to, you know, be enticed that way and talk to that way and entertain that way. But there's no love there. Love has been cheapened in our society. We talk about loving people. It refers oftentimes to just sex of making love. And people talk about falling in love and falling out of love. And she used to love and I used to love and, and songs about love. I think the word love is probably used in sermons more than any other word in a Christian life, in a Christian experience. It's probably referred to more in sermons as a point to support a text 
It's probably used to describe all the right things that we should do. It's the one thing everybody falls back on when they're offended and say, well, there's no love in him or that church or whatever. It's always a word that is handy to use because we have a, well, we have a vague meaning of it. Because most of the time love is, well, in the world sense, it's a sensual thing. It's something you profit from, you enjoy love. But it's never really the kind of love that God speaks of. God speaks of love in the sense of commitment, and I'll get to that again in a minute too. In fact, all throughout Scripture, especially the Old Testament, in fact, the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, what was written back a long time ago, hinge on love. It's all about love. Remember the Ten Commandments. God begins in those Ten Commandments. He said, no other gods before me. Remember that? I am the one thing and the one thing only that you dedicate yourself to, that you look unto, and that you surrender your life and affections to. That's what that would mean. There can be nobody else that has that before me. Nobody. Nothing. Not your career, not your life, your health, your family, your money, your fame, your fortune. Nothing is allowed to have your affections before God. He is first and he alone is worthy of all that you're able to give. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the second commandment, he said, don't make any images of me. I don't want any pictures trying to be painted of me. And so people can attach their devotion to those pictures or those statues or pictures of Jesus hanging on a cross. People like crosses with some skinny looking figure hanging on there. And, and somehow they looked at that when they pray. The Bible says, I don't want that. Don't make an image of me or anything in heaven. I don't want dove pictures, dove symbols, nothing that represents anything in heaven. Don't make something like that. That's the second thing he said. The third thing he says, you be careful how you use my name. Don't take my name in, in vain. Reverence me, for my name is who I am. My name is what I do. My name is a strong, strong tower. More than once he talks about how he loves and he ministers to those who know his name. You be careful how you use his name or the crowd you're around, how they use his name. You don't need to be around some people. And fourthly, he said, you remember the Sabbath day. I want one day a week in your life, I want you to come before me and spend some time with me. I want you to unhook yourself from your life and your world, all your routines in life. And I want you to devote your time and attention to me, recognize me and give me worship and so forth. Now that was the first four commandments. They had to do with how, in essence, this is how we love God. Anything less than that is not qualified as love. Now again, we don't come to him because we get something, though he will give us something. We come to him because he has attracted us to him and in some way manifested himself to us until the desire of our heart is to commit our lives to him. Not because he does something, because at that point he hadn't done anything. I mean, you haven't benefited anything. But you love him because he first loved you. Now, the next six commandments, though, 
He says, you know, the, the fifth one in the very middle, he says, you honor your parents. Now, that's not something between you and God. We go from you and your relationship to God now to you and your relationship with other people. Honor your parents. And then he said, thou shall not kill. We're not here to take lives. We're not here to destroy lives. He said, we're to love our enemies, which is not politically proper to say today, even in conservative circles, but it's the biblical truth that we are not to kill. The next of the commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now that is totally set aside today in our society. Our society is full of so much lewdness and so much lust, the way people dress, not only in the streets, but sometimes in the church, at church functions. It leaves little to the imagination and it does excite passions and wrong thoughts and ideas. The way you dress, girls, and maybe it's men today too, but I, I grew up when it was the other way. I mean, girls can dress in such a way that it's hard to concentrate on what you're doing because you keep wanting to look at them, whether their breasts or their body and other parts because the way they dress, the clothes that they choose to wear. They want to look good, they want to look nice, and they like to be noticed and admired, which is self-love. And so they do everything because it's me that everything is all about. So they dress that way to get that kind of attention. But he said, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus said, if a man looks upon a woman to lust after her, he has committed adultery. He didn't have to do that, but he didn't try to either. He was prompted, or we call it tempted to do that. Unless maybe those girls walking around in Israel with those big sacks on, maybe there was a real deep problem with some of those men. I don't know. But I just know that Jesus said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And then he said, thou shalt not steal. Don't take what's not yours. He said, don't bear false witness. Don't lie about other people. Don't misrepresent somebody. Don't perjure yourself. Don't tell something that's meant to be understood as true when it really is not true. You can't do that and be a Christian. If you do that, you have no love for the person you're lying about. And the last one he says, don't covet. Quit wanting what everybody else has. Quit wishing you had his money and wishing this and wishing that. Those are six commandments out of the 10, which are about your neighbor. Now turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22 and verse 37 to 40. Now here's what Jesus said about those 10 commandments I just mentioned. Somebody came to him in chapter 22 and verse 36, he said, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Now, would you agree with me this morning that in one verse of Scripture, Jesus described the deeper meaning of the first four of the Ten Commandments? That your life was intended the purpose of your life on this earth, the intention of God was that it would be focused on God, what he wants, and a willingness to do that without argument. He said, you shall in that way love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Verse 38, this is the first and great commandment. And the second 
The second is likened to it for the next six of the 10 commandments. The last six has to do with love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 and verse 12, he talks about how you do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men do to you, he said, even so do to them. We would say it like this, whatever you want people to do to you, because you by nature and inherently care about you. When you are hungry, you feed you. When you are dirty, you wash you. When you stink, you bathe you. When you're tired, you rest you. You are always considerate or thoughtful or thinking about yourself. You look for a job that makes the kind of money that you would like to have so that you can not only enjoy life in that degree, but have things in this life. And I mean, that's natural. There's nothing wrong with wanting to better yourself, to improve your life, improve your business or improve your whatever. Because you think about, you're only here in this life once. You're only here a brief time like a vapor smoke and you want to make the most of it. That's how you think about yourself. In that sense, self is not wrong because Jesus here said that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Now only God can make us like that. To where we look, as Paul wrote in Corinthians, where we look upon others that are brothers and sisters, we put their needs before our own. We would probably like that from them too for people to be concerned and caring and compassionate towards me and my needs. That doesn't mean they always agree with me or I with you. Love doesn't always mean we're in agreement. I love no woman in the world like I love my wife and I guarantee you, I don't always agree with her and I'm sure there's a verse vice in there. But I didn't marry her because I agreed with her. I married her before we ever had a thing to really, well, seriously disagree about. You know, when you court, you gotta make her mad once. I did, but that was enough. <laughs> See, I could say, you all don't know the others, but that's not true. That's not true. But to love as God causes us to love, I don't know how many people love the way God loves but he says you love your neighbor as yourself. You don't love people you backbite. You don't love people you gossip about. You don't love people that you have bad feelings about or who you pout about. You not only have unforgiveness in your heart, but you don't love people. When people offend you, you discuss that person, you talk about that person. I ain't going back to that church because, because that's not love. That's feelings and you're ruled by your feelings because that's what like prostitute Christianity is all about. It's all what I get out of it and it's all about how I feel about it. But it has nothing to do with commitment. It has nothing to do with it. A preacher could never say he loved his congregation if he was not committed to their well-being. He couldn't do that. 
You could act like you do. You could sound like you do. You could play like you do. You can do all those things that people think you do, but God who sees the heart knows that you don't. God knows. There's so much information in the Bible about love that when I begin researching for this, I got in over my head because love has so many different directions you can go with it. I started out in one simple direction, the how God responds to love. And next thing you know, I've gotten into all these books and all, I think, well, I'm over my head. But it is a huge subject because it actually, and it truly does determine how you fare in this life. I don't care if you go to church every day. I don't care if you read your Bible every day, you pray every day. If you don't love people as you love yourself, you don't love. You may like somebody and you may assemble yourself to people that, you know, you like manifileo love, the Bible calls it, but you would never commit yourself to those people. You would never give of your resources to those people to help them out because you find too many faults with them. And you can't love people you're always faulting. You go to people like that, don't you? Don't you go to people who offend you and you tell them their problem and forgive them or you repent? Don't you do that? Because that's what you would want somebody to do to you. That's how you would want somebody to treat you. You want everything opened. You don't want anything hidden. You don't want to be like so many people today. So many people are rude and unkind and act so nasty and so bad. People put a scowl on their face because they want you to be scared of them. They don't want you to love them. They want you to be scared of me. I can hurt you, man. They're vulgar and nasty. And, and all the flirtatious stuff you see on TV today and people talk about, no, oh, that's not love, that's lust. Boys fall in lust with girls. They don't fall in love with them. And girls don't care as long as they get attention. It's the end of the age. The love of many in the last days, one of the signs, the love of many will grow cold. They don't care anymore. And love is that kind of a subject that you have to study because you have to examine yourself as you read this and say, do I love with the love wherewith I was loved? Now take commitment, take commitment. And marriage. Love is a choice. Let me define it like this. Love is a choice that I make to commit myself to someone for their comfort, for their good, or for their advantage. It's a choice. I take marriage. Let me put that into context of marriage. When a man sees a woman that he's attracted to, he can't say that he loves her. He only knows he's attracted to her. Now, I'll use myself as an example because I don't want to embarrass these other fellows. I was a young boy growing up. I was sure all through, especially in the sixth grade. I was sure that I was in love with a girl named Linda Malkaby. And if I could have had the opportunity then, I'm sure I would have married her in Mr. Beard's class in the sixth grade. There was this great swoony feeling about her, this gasping for breath when Linda Mockaby would walk through the room. But 
it wasn't long after that until there was a, another girl that seemed to be just a notch more what you want. I was in love with her. But you see, I couldn't really love anybody. Not only did I not know how, but I didn't really know the person. But I didn't love my wife because I knew her so well. I guarantee you, at least in my relationship with her, I learned so much more about her after I married her that it might have prolonged the whole thing in the beginning. <laughs> How many of y'all know I'm adding a little bit to that? You see, I didn't marry my wife because she could cook. I didn't marry her because, because she could wash dishes and keep a house clean. I didn't marry her because she was able to perform. This was not a prostitute marriage. I married her before she did anything. I didn't know what the sex life would be like. I didn't know what the home life would be like. I didn't know how reaction and responses. I didn't know anything about that. But the attraction was turned into an affection. And the affection bore fruit to where I was willing to commit myself to this woman for the rest of my life. I wanted to get up every day and look at her. I wanted to sit at the table at night and eat with her. I wanted to look at her. I wanted to hear her talk. I wanted to watch what she did. I wanted to love her in that way. In all the ways that love is defined as God gives it, I was willing to do that before I knew anything about that. See, you make a commitment to somebody. I didn't marry her because she was performing well before that. We didn't live together. I knew nothing about that part. I married her because I believed she was the one and I was willing to set aside all the rest of them. Actually, in the heart, I will never ever be in love with another woman the rest of my life. In fact, the only woman I ever said, and I was a rowdy young man, but the only woman I ever told I loved was my wife. I still remember. Now, she didn't respond to that. I remember that. As vile as I was growing up, there was a standard that I had in my life about this. That who you marry, you stay married to. Maybe that was the old school, but it's really biblical. That who you marry, you marry forever. You get one shot at this, that's it. And when you marry them, you stay married. And I remember the day I chose to use that word and I told her that, she just sort of smiled and some little noise that she made, like, you know. And I kept thinking, come back with something. She didn't say anything. It made me wonder for a while if I'm the only one that's involved in loving somebody here. She liked my cute little flat top I had then. <laughs> Like to watch me play basketball in the big gymnasium? No. Our love became something that was God-oriented, God-designed, and he brought us together. And though we disagree on things occasionally, 
though we're not always on the same page about the color you paint the wall or the kind of couch you want and all of that kind of stuff. I didn't marry her because we were agreeing with everything. I married her because I loved her. And to marry for any other reason is to ask for trouble. Because you see, here's what divorce is. Marriage is a covenant. It's a thought out covenant between two consenting parties, him and her, all right? And him and her, I'm talking about the Bible now, him and her by mutual consent agree to come together and with vows consent to a bond of marriage whereby they enter into a lifelong relationship with each other really, hopefully, without knowing what's going to happen because you've got to use your faith. And divorce is a termination of that. And that's why God hates it. Because when he gives you his love and you love somebody else as best you know how with what he gave you, God never quit loving you once he loved you. And he doesn't give you the right to quit loving the one that you committed yourself to in the beginning. Well, he messed up and he ran off and he left me. Well, did you commit yourself to him? Now, he broke his covenant. Are you going to break it too? No, I'm not. I committed myself to him. I said I would. I'm going to stay put. I'm going to pray for him. And when God gets done with him, he's going to send him back to me. And I will still be here to be restored to the marriage we originally started with. That's what you do. And everybody thinks that's tragic. Oh, you're so young, you're missing out on something. They're talking about sex is what they're talking about. They're not talking about God being big enough to make your life have meaning. The world thinks you ought to remarry again, but it's all because of sex, feelings, emotions, sensuality. That's why you ought to marry again. That's why you shouldn't go without. It's just that God doesn't fit that void. God isn't as big as that. I don't want to overuse this word, but it does describe a lot of what people have. They call it's like a prostitute's love. You can act it pretty good. You can say all the right words. You can get people to respond and you go through all the motions, but it's not love. It's something else because there's no commitment. But true love is a commitment to somebody for their well-being, for their good. It's a commitment. A father who loves his children, a mother who loves her children, they commit themselves to the well-being of those children, not just to feed them and clothe them and send them through school, and all, but to make sure how they act, their conduct, their choices. They're involved with what they do, how they talk, their moves. They correct them when they're wrong. You're not happy with all the things your children do and say. I'm a parent, I know how that works. Sometimes, you know, when they look at you like, hey, I didn't ask to be born in this family. Your response is, it's a good thing you didn't ask, brother. <laughs> but in spite of that, I'm not loving my kids because they're doing everything right. You love them because you're their daddy. You're their mother. You cry over the things they do. You get some things you can't fix, but you don't want them to do that, and you're committed to their well-being, so you pray for them. 
You spend time with them. You talk with them. You try to monitor their life and help guide them through childhood into their adult life so that they can be citizens of God's kingdom. It's a whole design of why you're promoting them so much. You want them to turn out well. You teach them about values, about how to handle their money or their tempers or their moods or their rights and wrongs at home with their siblings. It's a commitment. And I think it weighs more on a mother than it does on a father. Let me tell you something. When daddy gets up in the morning, if he packs a lunch, I don't know if they still do such a trivial thing as that anymore. But when he goes out of the house in the morning and goes off to work, he's done. All the little needs and the mess up and the spills of orange juice and these diapers, if they're still in diapers, and all the little fusses and fights they get. Mom's got all of that. Daddy's free. At noon, he can cross his leg on job site or down at McDonald's, eat a Big Mac and read the paper. He didn't have to fix nothing. Mama does. Sometimes he comes home and she is somewhat weary because he wants him a big supper to boot. He wants everything in place. Four or five little kids run all over the house and he wants everything just real neat, right. So he comes home and says, hey, darling. She said, don't give me that darling stuff today. You don't love me. I love you more than you're aware. But I love you enough to tell you how I feel because I want you to have some kind of a tenderness about me and respect my feelings. So one of the kids jumps up and says, I wish you'd do the same for us. I want to love you the way God loves you. What do you say in Hebrews 12? Now, something in Hebrews 12 about this. For every son that God receives, doesn't he chasten? He chastens all of his sons because he loves them. Is that right? You mean to tell me that God chastens whom he loves? Chasten is a word that can describe verbal education, or it can be a reprimand like discipline or a correction of some sort. Whatever corrects a wrong or a fault, and whatever method is employed would be a part of what the word chastening means. And God gets on our case a lot because if he does not get on our case to change us, he has to judge us. God's love for us is that he never leaves us alone. God committed himself to you for your well-being for the goods in your life. And he wants you to commit yourself to him. To love God is to commit yourself to living his revealed way for his pleasure, for his glory. Now that's what it means to love God. It's a choice I make to commit myself first and foremost, just like those commandments, I commit myself to God to live on his terms. There can be nobody else. I cannot put anything else before God and still say I love God. I cannot put anybody there in that place of total prominence. I cannot put anything or anybody there and still say I love God. Now you can say you love God, but you don't. Turn to Luke 14 for just a moment. Luke 14. In Luke 14, towards the end of that chapter, Verse 
26. If any man come to me, now the word love is not used here, but it's implied right here. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters and even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So if I were to ask you the question based on one verse of scripture, what does God require from us first to be a disciple? Or if I want to be called a disciple of Jesus, what first must I consider? That there could be no other Lord before me but him. Not mothers, not your daddy, not your family, which most people cherish. They'll deny Sundays. They'll deny God to do something with their kids. They will. And if her kids are wrong, they will go to the Supreme Court and argue that they're right because they've made gods out of their kids. They've made gods out of their business, which gets all of their time. The family gets none. The idol is the job and the money, the success and the pride of accomplishment. That's their idol. Or some football team or basketball team, some sporting contest. Oh, they live. They would spend all their money to go to the car race or the ball game. Because that's their devotion. That's what they love. What you love is what gets your affections and your time. That's what you love. Visiting God twice a week is not love. You're seeing what you can get out of that. Maybe something good will come out of this. Maybe if I go to church, I'll get healed. Maybe if I go to church, my marriage will get fixed. Maybe if I go to church, I'll quit smoking. Maybe if I go to church, I'll quit drugging. That's like a prostitute. You're trying to get something out of all that. You don't feel anything about God. You don't really care anything about God. It's all about me. It's love for self. Self-love. But he said in verse 26, he said, If you love anybody, the word hate doesn't mean despise in the sense that you despise your own life because he said you can love others as yourself. You said to honor your parents in the fifth commandment. How in the world could you say to hate your parents? Well, he doesn't mean hate in the sense that we would use it. It means to love less. None of these things he mentioned, usually the things most dear to us, are the things that we put in our life as the focus of our attention, our pursuits, and our efforts and strengths and time and energies. And he said, if it's not God... Shelbyville Christian Assembly, we don't love God. We can sing about love. I love you, Lord, and I lift my... You can sing that while your hands are in the air without loving God at all. You can have the finest ritual and routine church in the whole country with people travel thousands of miles just to be in a service because of the way you worship and maybe we worship that way because we like the feeling that we get or the notoriety that we get. But it's not all about serving God because we sing for an hour. We preach for 20 minutes. The premium is not on the word. It's on the singing. Is that wrong? Somebody said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you have nursed. You know what Jesus said? He said, yea, rather. Luke 13, he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You cannot express a higher caliber of love for God than that. I don't care what you say. 
I don't care how you say it. I don't care what your words of choice are. Well, I'll tell you what. Let me show you what God does at love, just for a moment. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 31. Ezekiel 33 and verse 31. Aren't you glad God has committed himself to you? See, I hope you means that God has loved you and that you are responding in type. Think of the things he says. God is at work in you to will and to do of his. That's not happening in everybody's life. That's not happening in church members' lives everywhere or all of them. It's happening in some, of course. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will help your weaknesses by making intercession for you. Why would he do that? Because he loves you. God's committed to you. When he made you, before you were ever born, he had committed all the love there's possible. God is love. The whole epitome of it, that love centered on you. And you came into this world and you grew up, and for a time, at least in my life, you were a miserable sinner. You were a car chaser, a dog. And even Paul wrote in Romans 5 in verse 8, he said, even though while we were sinners, while we were sinners, he did what? He loved us. He didn't love us because we were serving him. He didn't love us because we were performing. He didn't love us because we put money in the bucket, box, pan, or sock. He didn't love us because we went on missionary trips. He didn't love us because we taught Sunday school class. He loved us because from the beginning, he set his love upon us. Like he said in Deuteronomy 5, he said, I did not set my love upon you because of who you were. He said, I did not set my love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. That's not why I loved you. He loved his people before they even knew who he was. In fact, the only thing they knew about him was he called himself, I am, I am, I exist. And they were the most rowdy, stiff-necked, hard-headed bunch of people. In fact, most of them he led out of Egypt died in the wilderness. He had to purge his people of those people. But he committed himself to the well-being of these people. He loved them. He gave his only begotten son. How did he start that verse, John 3, 16? God so loved. Didn't say just God loved, but God so loved the world. He didn't come to save the world, but he provided a way in which anybody in the world who wants to be saved can be saved. His grace the death of Jesus was sufficient to save whosoever comes. He said by his love, he drew them out and he drew them to him. And he set them in his presence, not because we had done anything, because grace means we didn't deserve any of this. We did nothing to merit his love and his attention and his affections. And yet while we were still stinking with our sins, he began to send his word to us. He put his spirit in us. The spirit of Christ came to make us alive unto him. 
Holy Spirit came to take the things of Jesus and make them real to us so we know what to commit ourselves to, what to be devoted to. That's his word. The Spirit came, I will take the things of Jesus and show them unto you. I will reveal things to you. I will show you things to come. I want you to see what it is that becomes number one in your life that your most intense devotion is to. Everything else must pale in the light of who he is and what he is doing for you. I can't say that he's at work in everybody. I can't say that everybody in the church is experiencing chastisement or correction or purging. But he plainly said, if you're without chastisement, he said, you're bastards and you're not his children. You're illegitimate children. You act like children. You perform like children. You sing like children. You clap your hands like children, but you live like the world. God's people are being harassed about their worldliness. This is what he doesn't want. Ezekiel chapter 33, 31. And they come unto thee as the people cometh. And they sit before thee as my people. And they hear thy words. But what? Now why? Let me tell you why. Because they don't love it. They put a limit on how much of God he gets. I'm in this thing as long as I get something out of it. They came to Jeremiah and they said in chapter 44, we're not going to do all this stuff you're telling us. Twice in a couple of verses, we won't do it. You can preach all you want to and tell us all this. Thus saith the Lord, we will not do it. Then they said this about this prostitute mentality. Since we've been listening to you, we used to have enough to eat. We used to have, we used to have, we used to have. Since we turned to the words you're telling us, everything, we got nothing. So we're through following this thing which is bringing us down. I've heard that in, in the faith camp for years. Jeremiah said, the reason you're brought down is because of the sins in your life and the attitudes of your hearts. That's why you're brought down. That's why it doesn't work. That's why God does not respond to you. It's your heart. Listen to this. Ezekiel 33. He said, they hear thy words, verse 31 again, but they will not do them for with their mouth they show what? They show much love. And who would say you don't love the Lord when there you are with your hands in the air, you got that saintly look on your face, and it seemed like you're enjoying so much. Oh, bless ye the Lord. And you're just having yourself a moment. It looks like. And who would I be to say, quit that. You don't love the Lord. See, love is not only a commitment, it's also an experience. Love always does something. God so loved the world, he Gave. Love your neighbor as yourself. You do something. Love is never something. It's just a word that defines loftiness. But love is a word that defines an action. An expression. And in this case, he said, with their mouth, they show much love, but their heart goeth after 
what a prostitute goes after, covetousness, money. It's all about me, my, and mine. What's in it for me? Listen to it again. I didn't write this. For with their mouth, they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, you are unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but what? And they love to do them. They hear thy words, but they will not do them. Why won't they do them? Because they don't love the Lord. You say, they do love the Lord. Watch them sing. Watch them praise. Look how they help around and do things. Look at all of it. Yes, but also look at the covetous life they're living. They're in it because they're getting something out of it. It's not because they just want to spend their life like money to get what God wants. I'm in it because I want something out of this. Listen to these words in Psalm 78. You don't have to turn to it. I've already computerized, pasted it to my paper here. <laughs> Psalm 78, verse 35. And they remembered that God was their rock and the high God their redeemer. Nevertheless, well, they remembered all right. Their minds were on God and what he did and who he is and all those promises the preacher talks about. They remembered God was a rock and the high God their redeemer. Nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouth and they lied unto him with their tongue for their heart was not right with him. Neither were they steadfast in his covenant. That's how God describes the people who were doing all the right things. Remember Isaiah 29, we spoke that recently, 29 and verse 13. He said, this people with their mouth, they show much love. He said that. But their heart is far from me. They've learned how to do this stuff. They've learned how to raise their hands. They've learned how to clap their hands and sing the right songs and gesture the right way. And, and they've learned how to involve themselves in what everybody is doing. But God sees the heart. And I'm not here to judge anybody in this room or you, me. All I'm saying is we can manifest religion outwardly all day long and most people would never know where our heart is. Now, being married to Bonnie and Bonnie married to me, I know where her heart is. You be around a person enough, you can't hide it. You know where a person's devotion is, you know where their heart is, you know what they've surrendered to. I'm sure she loves God more than me. I'm sure of that because God makes no room for her to love me more than him. But when you love him with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind, he, by his word, informs you and directs you how you should love your neighbor. You don't put your neighbor before God, do you? But because you put God first and you begin to seek after him and to learn his ways, he tells you how to love your neighbor, tells a wife how to love her husband, tells a husband how to love his wife, how to love your children. If the Bible is full of everything we're supposed to do as a direct result of committing our hearts and lives to God. First, that's why we don't compromise. That's why we're not for sale. Money doesn't turn us away. A job in another country doesn't remove us 
from where we are. Our commitment is to God. And because we're committed to God, we also have a commitment to a local assembly. A commitment to your wife, your husband, your friends, your, your neighbors. I mean, your love is extended because of the work that God does in you. It flows through you. It's God loving people through you, and you don't stop it. Yes, you're taken advantage of. Yes, you get abused. Yes, a lot of wives get hammered. Yes, 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 yes. That's why I said you have to trust the Lord. God takes care of all of these things, and he'll take care of us. Because the one who is doing this work in us, this refining work, this purging work, this good work, this preparation work, this last day work, this sending us an intercessor work, when he says when he is able to present you faultless, that's Jude 24, he is able to present you faultless, that's what he's doing right now. If he's doing something in your life, it is to bring you to a place where as you stand before God, you stand there without spot, wrinkle or any such thing, God has committed himself to you to that goal. If you don't want that, you can go. But there's some of you that can try to go and you can't go. He set his love upon you. He's not wasting his time with you. Even some that have drifted off and just decided they were going to quit God. They hit a snag in life and they're out here, they're back. There's more he's going to bring back. He's not through because what he started, he that began a good work, he's going to finish it. If he started it, he's going to finish it. Would you turn to John 14 and verse 15? This is the question. This is how you prove yourself. If you love me, keep my commandments. In verse 21, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them. Now the word keepeth defines a guard, a warden at a prison. One who is assigned to keep an eye on. That's what the word keepeth is like. Now he that hath my commandments. I would say, I know you all have them. I don't know that you do or not. I'm going to assume that you do, and for the sake of the sermon, I'm going to assume that you do. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them. It's how you would define faith or faithfulness. To keep his word is to be faithful to it, isn't it? Put your finger right there for just a second. Galatians 5 and verse 6, the very end of that verse. It's not circumcision or uncircumcision that amounts to anything, but the end of verse six says, but what that does what? Faith that does what? Whoa, what a sermon. What a message is there for all you young preachers. It'll be about a three-parter. Faith which works by love. If faith means counting on God to do what he said, and faith comes by hearing the word, so I read in this word what he says. These are the words of God. This is how I know what to do and what's right and wrong. But this word, this word is light. It illumines me. If they speak not according to this word, they have no light. Okay. God gives me his word and he says, I'm the Lord that heals thee. Now, what then is the proper motivation for healing? 
Now think of it, just think of it. The proper motivation for healing is not so you can feel better, though you benefit that way. It's because God wants you healed. God wants you to trust him for the well-being of your body. Do you love him? Then if you love him, you don't set that aside and say, well, I, I don't need that. I don't mind. No, 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 no. God wants you well. That's a testimony to his power in your life that you have believed. The motivation of my faith to get my needs met is not so I can just get something all the time and live any way I want to. Just as much as loving your neighbor as yourself or loving your wife is trusting God for your needs. People don't do that much anymore. While I'm speaking, there used to be a time just a few years ago that people trust God for just about everything. It wasn't the world you ran to, it was the Almighty God. And if you had to wait and do without, you were glad to do that and you did it worshiping because that's one of the things that, that you committed yourself to, to whatever God said. My God shall supply all you need. So you said, well, there's other ways to do this. Yes, there is, but I don't want to put anything else before him. I just want to do it his way. Healing, how many doctors are there in the world? How many hospitals, how many hospital rooms, how many pills and syrups and drugs and procedures are there? They're just beyond count. All of that's available to you. And the world is so full of sickness that almost everybody dreads the least cough, sneeze, or ache, or pain. All oh, this is the big one because it seems like that's what they all advertise. And yet you come to the Lord and he says, God says, I have committed myself to your well-being, not just getting you in heaven, that's the big one, but while you're on this earth to give you richly all things to enjoy, to be the reason of your rejoicing, to be the reason why you are at peace. You don't dread the pains and the problems and the adversity or the circumstances. You just know that God has said he will take care of it. And so you have given your faith to God. You have said, I'm counting on you to do this. Praise the Lord, because I'm committed to you and your way. He said, the one thing that counts is faith when it's prompted by doing it God's way. I'm committed to God, therefore I want to be healed. I'm committed to God, I want to prosper. I want that to be one of my testimonies. It doesn't have to be extravagant. It's just more than I have. Prosperity is more than enough. You don't have to have a whole lot more than enough. Some people get more because they have a gift, a gift of giving and so forth. I want it to be even unto me as he has said it. I don't have to have a new car. If I'm inspired to believe for a new car, I believe for a new car because I want to please God. They don't make cars big enough for God to go, wow. And they've never made a car in which God went, man, or any kind of expression of, wow. Things that your heart is inspired to do, and you do it because you want to please the Lord. I know everybody's going to walk around the car and say, whoa, it must be nice. Well, actually, it is nice. If I can say it without boasting or being pumped up by it. I bought new cars before, and I parked them so somebody couldn't see them. Are you ashamed of it? No, I'm not ashamed of it. 
I just didn't want everybody to go, whoa, another one? Yeah. And who knows where it goes? We went many years without it. And through many trials and turbulent years and difficult years, what was it he said that he will do? The Lord is my shepherd. Is that in there? I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He is restoring me. He is taking me from a, a dog, from an ain't to a saint. It's been a long, tedious process, but you should work out your salvation. It is a slow process because we don't always respond. But God has committed himself to the opening of your eyes to see all the wonderful blessings that belong to you so you have a reason to use your faith to obtain what your Father has spoken to you about. If you don't like that, you need to wear boots. You wear tennis shoes when you get up and run because it's so good. You wear boots when you don't want to run. He used to say, if you're going to read Psalm 112, you've got to wear your tennis shoes because halfway through there, you're going to go, whoo, you're going to take off running. But that was yesteryear. We used to do that. that. Not anymore. We used to do that. And so today, as we come to the conclusion of our message on love, just remember this, that God did not set his love upon anybody in this room because you had talents because you had abilities, because you were cool. But he set his love upon you because he wanted to. Why me? I don't know. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Why? Why? What did I do? I didn't do anything. All I did was sin. We're going to pick it up at verse 21. I haven't forgot that. But I want to do it next week. I want to take a little bit of time with this because this explains what I'm talking about. Anybody that has my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loved me, and he that loveth me shall be loved by my Father. If I keep the word of God because I want to, because I'm committed to doing that. It's what God has revealed that he wants, and I am willing to do that. Did he say that he would love me? What if I disregard that word and I say, I'm not ready for that, and I set that aside, and I really don't keep his commandments. I hear them, I'm a hearer of the word, but not a doer. Does he still love me anyway? Because everybody says God loves everybody. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, there are things in your word that are deeper than we are. They go beyond. Things that challenge us. Things that are designed to capture our attentions. Bring us to a halt in our busy lives. To make us to ponder, as the psalmist said, to meditate upon your word. May this be one of those subjects and may this be that time of our lives 
and this time in history that you're bringing us face to face with yourself. God deliver us from you having a controversy with us in that you have to judge us. But Lord, in your power and in your might, do that divine work in us that makes us pliable in your hands, that makes us surrendered to you. Or as you said in Ezekiel, to cause us to walk in all your ways. Teach us what it really means in this hour to love you. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. He is able to keep me from falling and to present me before his glorious throne. I shall appear without